Okay, <clears throat> good morning everyone. <clears throat> so this is a makeup for last night's class, which was at the conclusion of Hanukkah, which is really going to be a makeup for a share that I gave on Sunday. We had a very special Rosh Chodesh Hanukkah event here. I gave a share this Sunday, but um, I, for some reason, didn't record. So I want to recapture that class and maybe some additions. So even if you were here presently in the room when I gave that class, um, this is listenable, first of all, retainable because it's recorded. And also it is going to be, um, there's going to be some, probably some new additions. Any case, um, the idea of this class is that even though it's a Hanukkah class and today's a day after Hanukkah, but we want to hold on to Hanukkah. And we would like to figure out what is it that we got on Hanukkah? What did we receive and what do we have? And we have to unpack our Hanukkah suitcase so that we can see what kind of jewels and gems are with us. And hopefully we can carry it with us for all of the year. Now, Hanukkah is the hidden light. Uh, as mentioned many times, Kislev is from the word case, Lamed Vav. Case means what is hidden, Melosh and Mechusa, from the word Mechusa, covered. And Lamed Vav, which is 36, is the ultimate number of revelation. Because when something is totally revealed, you say, Ela, these are. Like the, like the verse, in the first verse in the book of Deuteronomy, Ela Hadvarim, these are the words that Moshe spoke. So it's a revelation. Well, now we don't know what Moshe is thinking. Now we have Moshe's mind revealed to us. Or, Ela Shemos Bnei Yisrael, these are the names of the Jewish people. So it's going to give you a list, an open list of the names of Israel. So Ela means complete revelation. So Kesh Lamed Vav means what is hidden is revealed. And what is that? It's the hidden light. The hidden light is discussed by many, many holy books. The light that was preceding at the beginning of creation. The light where one can see from one end of the world to the other end of the world. Also, which is going to be revealed again at the days of Mashiach. So it's Messianic light. Now this great Ur Haganus, this hidden light that's going to be revealed in the days of Mashiach, began to reveal itself through the Holy Baal Shem Tov. So the lights of Hanukkah is really a Hasidic light. It's a messianic light, um, as will be discussed. In that sense, I would take the great um, moment right now to go through a great um, variation, to go through an entire spectrum of all the different colors of the Hasidic menorah, which means we'd like to take a journey through eight, being that we're eight days of Hanukkah, eight thoughts and perspectives on Hanukkah from the Hasidic masters. When I say Hasidic masters, usually we discuss one line of Hasidic masters over here, mainly the Chabad line. This time I want to include Chabad, but we want to include the, the breadth of Hasidus, which means the students of the Holy Baal Shem Tov and the various different channels. Like the Baal Shem Tov was this Ur Haganus, this hidden light revealed. And then it was he, it, Baal Shem Tov's students and students of students leading up to Mashiach are shining, are revealing that light through the prism through their own own perspectives as each one has a slight different slant, different style, and so on and so forth. So what we're going to go through today is as follows. We're going to start with Reb Shleim of Radomsk, the great holy Rebbe, the Radomska Rebbe. Radomsk was a very great Hasidic, um, um, Hasidic in pre-war Poland. There's still some Radomsk today, but nothing close to what it was before. It had thousands and thousands of Hasidim. Most of them were wiped out in the Holocaust. The great and famous Rebbe of Radomsk 
the Shleima of Redomskin is known mainly by his Sefer Tfedah Shleima. After that, we will go to the Holy Reb Levi Yitzhak of Bardichev, uh, the great and holy Bardichev, and no, needs no introduction. Um, then we will learn from the teachings of the Bnei Yisachar, the great Rebbe of Dinev, the great and saintly Rebbe of Dinev, whose books on uh, the Yom and Taivim are literally spectacular. And then we will continue on with a teaching from the school of, and that's what we're going to have. We're going to go on with the teachings of the Rebbe's of Bells, the Bells of Rabbeim. Um, and then we're going to move into the teachings of the Rebbe of Gur, the um, Svasemis from the Gur Chesidus. Then we're going to learn from the Ruziner dynasty, from <coughs> the Holy Rebbe, Saintly Rebbe Israel of Ruzhin. And then we're going to have a thought from the great um, Chernobyl dynasty, Chernobyl dynasty, a teaching from the Bas Ayan, who was uh, a student from the school of Chernobyl. And then we're going to move finally into the Chabad uh, take. So this is going to give us eight different perspectives on Hanukkah. So ready or not, here we go. So the ho- the, the the great Berish um, Loima, who in his first piece on Hanukkah, asks the, the question that is asked, um, why is it that we celebrate eight days of Hanukkah? He bases off. Um, see, most of these Hasidic teachings, you have to understand, questions, answers are not the most important idea over here. It's, the, it's this incredible godly light that shines through in their teachings, which make any experience of Torah or holiday into a personal uh, message, into a personal experience, as opposed to just reading a story of, events that happened many years back, but a living Torah. That's what Hasidism has brought to the world, a living Torah. It reveals the Torah from a place that's beyond time and space. So at that in that level, every person can connect. So anyways, he asks the question, why is it, which is already a, a question that's asked in Shulchan Aruch way back for hundreds of years, Hanukkah, why would we make Hanukkah eight days if the miracle of the oil was really only seven days? Because for the first day they had oil. They only didn't have oil for seven days. So the miracle happened seven days. Since we're celebrating the miracle, so we should only celebrate the latter seven days and not the first the first day. And uh, the simple answer, I mean, there's many answers. Simple answer that was given by the Bess Yosef is that one of the celebration of the first day is because we found the oil. The mere fact of finding the oil, I think the Bess Yosef says it. Maybe I'm, I'm incorrect. Maybe one of the other uh, commentators uh, explained, but the actual finding of the oil itself, that itself um, gives, um, I'll tell you over here. Any case, I think the, 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 that the, the finding of the, of, the, of the jug is the unique thing. Okay, so let's go a little deeper. And the Tver Shlomo follows this idea that the finding of the oil itself is the primary miracle of Hanukkah. Um, but he explains, I mean, okay, they found, it was obviously there, the, the, and the Greeks missed it. So what's this idea that why is this such a big deal? So we know they found a jug which was had a special seal. The, 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 the Greeks, when they came into the temple, were intent on desecrating, on contaminating. So they opened up all the bottles and they purposely touched the oil because they knew that those oils that they touch are impure and cannot be used. 
So um, when they found this one jug of oil and one jar of oil that was sealed and the seal wasn't broken, they know it was kosher, but it was sealed. What's very important over here wasn't that it was a sealed bottle, but it was sealed with the seal of the high priest. Which, by the way, is a good question because what's the high priest doing a sealing? The high priest had other, other business to do in the temple. He wasn't standing over there sealing jug, uh, jars of oil. There's enough other people that can do that. You just have to be pure. Um, what's the high priest doing it? So you see that this is a special connection, dafka to the high priest, to the Kohen Gadol. And the concept and the idea is as follows. When the Greeks contaminated the oil, if we take it in the, in the broader sense, the word oil in Hebrew is from the word shemen. Is, is, the word in Hebrew is shemen. Shemen is the same letters as the word neshama. Most of the letters of the word neshama, which means soul, is shemen. So what it really means when they contaminated the oil was they contaminated the souls. The souls of Israel became infected with a Greek virus. So what is this idea? And uh, and he says that the, the, the word neshama is actually shemen hay. That the main idea of the neshama is that it is shemen, it is oil. We'll soon see later why. But this oil, it's pure oil, and it's coming from the hay. What's the hay? The hay is, the, is one of the letters of God's name. So the neshama is a little piece of God. More particularly, the latter hay of Hashem's name, the four letters of God's name. The latter hay of Hashem's name is the Shekhinah. And all neshamas are pieces of the Shekhinah, parts of the Shekhinah. And so that's the idea of Shemen, Shemen hay. The, the, the neshama, the soul that comes from the hay. That... And now all of our souls come from that. Now the Greeks polluted the souls. What does it mean a soul that is polluted? Uh, he doesn't explain. I'm just going to give just common sense explanation that polluted soul means a soul that doesn't find godliness. A soul is supposed to be naturally sensitive to the divine. It's supposed to sense God's awareness. It's supposed to sense God's presence all the time. It's supposed to have a deep faith in God. That's natural to the soul to have a muna, also bitachon, to have a deep trust in God, uh, to have a certain um, um, continuous desire to get close, a longing, a, a flow of, of, uh, of love towards Hashem. Now, of course, all these things are intensified if we put in work. When we put in work, our Ramuna becomes much sharper and much clearer. When we put in work, our trust in God becomes stronger. When we put in work to see Hashgach Pratis, which means divine providence, it intensifies our, our, um, our ability to see godliness. When we invest in meditation and in prayer to increase our love to Hashem and our fear in God, all these things are dramatically increased. However, um, it, there is still the basic that should always be there. And when a soul gets polluted, it kind of darkens the soul that one's spiritual consciousness and awareness and connection to God is, um, is, is, um, is uh, shut down. And um, the soul and a person is living in extreme darkness. And then as a result of that, sometimes they fall into a depression. They don't even know what's depressing them and so on and so forth. This is the idea of um, a polluted soul. So the, the Greeks were so, were so, were so powerful Spiritually, they represented such a spiritual darkness, um, as it's explained many places, that the Greeks, precisely because they had philosophy, they were thinkers, um, and therefore they challenged the Torah. Torah was, is a holy, a holy, a holy uh, discipline, a holy, a holy wisdom, and they were also had their own wisdom, and their and 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 because they had wisdom, 
they they ensnared the Jewish people into their studies, into their way of thinking, and that where is the where does the soul primary reside in the mind and the brain? The main souls, the first presence of the soul is in the brain. From the brain, it spreads to the rest of the body, and therefore, when someone can get into the brain, see m- much of the time when we're faced with various different temptation or various different impurities around us, it's more towards the heart and more towards, which is, even though the heart is extremely important, but it's already the secondary stage of the soul. So if uh, the heart gets a little, a little, a little um, um, impure, doesn't necessarily knock the soul out. But if one can contaminate a mind, uh, the mind becoming contaminated is very, very dangerous. And that's what the Greeks did. They reached for the oil. Oil means the soul, but oil also particularly means the chachma of the soul, the wisdom of the soul. And when you hit the soul, when you contaminate at that level, it's a it's a, um, a horrific, horrific um, paralyzation of the soul. And that's what happened. And we had nowhere to turn to. Because once your soul is polluted, what are you going to do? How are you going to find the holiness and the godliness to, to restore yourself to Hashem? That's the problem. So that's where the miracle happened. The miracle that happened was that they found one jar, jug sealed with the, with the Kohen Gadol. What is the Kohen Gadol? The Kohen Gadol is the super soul. That means there are many, that all of our souls are godly. But then there is one super soul, and that's the awesome tzaddik, which is a recurring theme in Teferi Shlomo and his writings. He's very, very, very um, um, much, very, very um, devoted to the concept of the tzaddik, the super soul, that there are souls that are very, very, very lofty and very high. And the unique thing about the Kohen Gadol is that the Kohen Gadol is an uncontaminatable soul. That's the meaning of having shem and oil that was, signed, it was sealed with the seal of the Kohen Gadol. It's talking about a human being who is generally uncontaminatable by anything on the outside. And the reason is because he, this person lives in such a state of, of integration and oneness with God. So just like God himself is uncontaminatable, so too the soul, this level of soul, this level of tzaddik cannot be contaminated. As we see in the law, the Kohen Gadol is one who is told that he, every Kohen in general has a higher level of sanctity than the rest of the Jewish people. That's why they're chosen to, to, um, to officiate in the, in the temple. So they're a higher level and therefore they're not allowed to um, come into contact with dead, with any dead um, uh, corpses and go to funerals. I could go to a funeral, but you have to stay at a distance. Cohen has to stay outside. Now let to go under the same roof. Go out. You're not, you're not supposed to go into a cemetery. Um, the the uh, so, but however, regular Kohanim are able to uh, defile themselves, which means not only they're uh, they're able to, but they 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 are commanded to when it's a very close relative, a brother, a sister, God forbid, a parent, or a child, or a wife. So these are the, the, the exceptions, the seven closest relatives, where a person is allowed to, um, um, a Kohen as a mitzvah, to yes, to become impure by handling the, the, the coffin, the body, and so on and so forth. Um, however, a Kohen God, the high priest, is prohibited. There isn't, he's, he's not allowed to come to any contact with any Tumah. 
if that is the case, so what's the deeper meaning of that? The deeper meaning is from what, what are we supposed to understand from the fact that he is pro- prohibited to become impure? In essence, it means he's beyond impurity. Now, this idea he doesn't say, but I'm gonna inter I'm gonna interject the concept that the the Lubavitcher Rebbe says in Parshas Emor when he speaks about the level of, of holiness of the Kohen Gadol, he says that in essence, the Kohen Gadol's holiness is a direct reflection of God's holiness. Because God is also referred to as the Holy Kohen, as the Kohen Gadol. And um, God, there's various verses that refer to Hashem as the Kohen, and Hashem is the Kohen. If he's the Kohen, he's the Kohen Gadol, he's the high priest. And um, and over there, the Rebbe explains that the holiness, the concept of of the of the purity of the of the Kohen Gadol is that he is contaminatable proof, cannot become contaminated because God can't become contaminated. It's only that when that level of holiness is being translated into a human being, into a soul that is inhabiting the physical world which our physical world is not perfect yet until we have the complete redemption. Um, since we got some nice background music here a minute. Someone. Okay, hold on one second. So since, since the Kohen, I'm sorry, just uh, threw me off a second. Since um, um, when that is, tr- when, when that lo- lofty level is translated down into the physical world, it translates down, it, because the physical world is not perfect, you can't have a perfect translation. It can't be drawn down into the world as it truly is, in that you have a physical human being who is incontaminatable, because the physical is not yet perfectly refined. refined. Nothing to do with the Kohen Gadol's own body. It has to do with the nature of the generality of the physical world until Mashiach comes. So therefore that makes that even someone who encompasses the lofty level of the Kohen Gadol's soul, due to the, due to the nature of the body, even the Kohen Gadol, it is possible for him to become impure. But being that he's reflecting that level that is incontaminatable, it translates then as a commandment at a prohibition that he's not allowed to become impure. In other words, from being, from, from, the essence of Kohen Gadol is non-purity at the highest level, which can, which is, which leaves no room for impurity. Now, in its truest form, it's not able to become impure. In its best, in its translation into the world, it translates as a prohibition against impurity. Being that that's the case, the Kohen Gadol is the one whose holiness is his his oil is the most is the most pure. So what does that what, what 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 does that mean? Let's give it a little a better understanding. What does it mean the pure oil? So we mentioned earlier the soul is called shemen, it's called oil. Um, primarily, it's within the neshama itself. The deepest point of the soul is called is called oil, because shaman, as mentioned earlier, is also the level of chachma, the level of wisdom. As we find that um, the Talmud associates in many places 
the concept with um, oil as being related to wisdom. You find, first of all, even in the Tanakh, we find that King David one time was looking for a wise woman. So he sent to the city of Tekua. And from the city of Tekua, they got this uh, uh, the woman who was a wise woman. Tekua was a place where olives, where olives grew. So they went to get the olives. Um, they went to get the woman from that city because a place where there's olives means that the very land itself has a extra dose. It is predisposed, so to speak, to extra wisdom. So this woman was a very wise lady. Sages also tell us that if you were very careful with Shabbos candles and Hanukkah candles, uh, you will have children who will be scholars. Again, emphasizing the relationship of Shemen to Chachma, to wisdom. Now, wisdom over here doesn't mean smarts. Wisdom over here means, from the Kabbalistic un- understanding, is that wisdom is the it's the highest. And the meaning of wisdom is the ability to receive something in its utmost truth without mixing in anything of self. Wisdom is the pure opening of the soul to be open for a for a higher revelation. And that's the meaning of koach, the word in Hebrew, the word of wisdom is the word chachma. Chachma stands for koach ma, the power of what. What does that mean? It's the power to be totally silenced, to silence yourself completely and be open for a, for a enlightenment coming to you. And in the soul, it means the soul is completely open for pure divinity to, fl- to, to go inside, to enter into the soul unfiltered. And that, because we have that deepest part in our soul, that's where the soul touches God, literally. Because God dwells inside the soul in the point of Chachma. And because of that, in general, the Chachma is an uncontaminatable place. Because a place where you are, where you're experiencing God on the level that the, the Nishama literally is, 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 um, is, is, uh, is, um, submerged in divine truth without any tiny bit of self, uh, of, of one's own description or one's own, um, um, interjection into that truth. That's the, that's where faith is. That's what faith is. Faith is not, logic and understanding. Faith is a receptiveness. A receptiveness is ultimate truth. As the Alter Rebbe explains in Tanya, that um, from that very place of Chachma, that's where we are ready to, to melt our existence away for God. And that's what leads people to give their lives up. If, God forbid, one wants to um, impose a life, uh, a, 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 a situation onto a, onto a soul, where it will have to deny God, the soul cannot do it when we are exposed to this level of oil. So, and that's why we say that, and, and the truth is like every single person has that oil and um, the deepest inner point of the soul, which, and that's uncontaminatable. Because where, where one can, the neshama that we spoke earlier that could become contaminated is on the more external aspects of our soul and our more um, outer layers of our consciousness where holiness is already translating or trickling down further into our consciousness, where we're beginning to interact with it with our own self. In other words, 
after we receive this enlightenment, when we're trying to translate it and explain it into our own words and our own understanding, that's when the pollution can start. That's when some kind of contamination can get in. But when the, the light of God is in its full potency and its full purity, and we're receiving it without any selfhood, just, just with total and chassidus, it's called the bittel, that's the purity. And that, and now to connect that to oil, then when we, the, 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 um, what you see, what's unique about oil is that oil, um, um, allows itself to be consumed by fire, um, com- completely to become, um, fuel for fire. You see many, fire burns many, many, many substances. To keep a fire going, you have to add fuel. And you can add wood and, and, and other things. But the uniqueness of oil is that all other substances, when they, when they interact with fire, they resist the fire. There is some kind of a conflict. The fire is, is fighting with the, with the, uh, with the substance. It's trying to overtake the wood. It's trying to, um, burn the, the, the fly, the, the cotton or whatever it is. So therefore you'll find that it makes a little bit of a noise. The noise represents the friction. The only thing that goes into the fire, um, silently is oil. And if it's a pure oil, especially pure olive oil. So pure olive oil represents, it's almost like the olive oil is joyfully and happily melt being, being nullified in the fire. The general aspect of every entity is that an entity wants to retain its own existence. Oil has this like interesting, um, um, nature that it is perfectly fine getting lost in the fire. So that's the oil that's at the core of a Jews of our soul is that we are kind of happy to not exist, but, but as an independent separate entity, but rather be included in ultimate truth. <clears throat> that's our Ramuna. That's where Messiris Nefesh comes from and, so, and the like. So the difference between the Tzaddik and the regular pre- person is the regular between the high priest and an ordinary soul. Each and every one of us has that potential, has it inside of us, but it could be, it could be concealed and not, and not, and not tapped throughout our lives. We can, we can live in a very ungodly state. However, the tzaddik, the high priest, is someone whose oil, his chachma, is his or her entire identity. It's who they are. Their oil has expanded to consume them from head to toe. There, there isn't a fiber in their being that is not saturated with oil. They're like a latka, like a donut, where the oil is where it's saturated. Hanukkah, we donuts. We, we're bringing the oil completely through every every element of whatever it is. And that's the idea of the tzaddik. His oil is so potent and it's so so intense and there isn't any nuance in his or her life that is not saturated with that divine awareness and that utter surrender to God and that's the holy and from the tzaddikim there's a lot of tzaddikim and then there is the tzaddik hadar the the, the main tzaddik of the generation who is the, who is the purest of the purest of the oil and that's the miracle of Hanukkah that we found a tzaddik that even though the Greeks had a, 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 such a, 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 a strong grip on the Jewish people spiritually in which they almost, almost managed to contaminate every single soul. One soul 
um, remained pure. And once you have one place of purity, from that soul can be a purification. And that was Matasyahu, the, 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 the head of the Maccabim, who went out to fight. And he brought together with him his entire, uh, you know, all the people that followed him. He turned, what did he do? Because he was not contaminated by the, by the Greek uh, um, virus, he was able to uncover the, the point of oil that's in every single, all the other Jewish people and awaken within them their sacrifice, expose their oil, and which is not contaminatable. And once he exposed that and revealed that it burned for seven days means it entered into all the seven dimensions of a person's emotions and so on and so forth. He drew forth their oil, brought it out. And as a result of that, he had a miracle of Hanukkah. So the good news that we get from the Tver Shlomo is number one, God always, no matter how dark a, a generation is, there's always a, a tzaddik that's always there that, that is available and who can always bring about salvation for all the people. In addition to that, we have to realize that we have the high priest in our own selves, a place that maybe is hiding, but it's really there. And from there, we can jumpstart and rededicate ourselves like Hanukkah is a rededication. There is way, way, way more in the Tzver Shlomo, but I just took a tiny little thought of his teachings um, and we move onward. Now we're going to move into the, an amazing, beautiful teaching from Reb Levi Yitzhak of Bardichev. So what does the Holy Bardichever teach? So Rebbe Levi Yitzhak Bardichev says as follows, that um, why is Hanukkah called Hanukkah? And he prefaces it by a question. In the, in the um, davening on Shabbos, um, those who are familiar, we say an extra prayer on Shabbos called the prayer of Musaf. In the repetition of the Shemayna Esrei, by Musaf we say, a special um, uh, kedusha, special sanctification of Hashem's name, but it's called keser, keser yitnu lecha. And in, in at the conclusion of the keser piece, which is said, recited like back and forth between the the chazan, between the one who's leading the services and the regular people, and the rest of the congregation. Um, in the end, there is a piece called Hu Elokeinu, which in Chabad is sung by a very happy tune. In any case, it's one of the songs that Lubavitcher had taught. Over there, there is a phrase. It says, Behold, I have redeemed you. Acharis, in our Nusach, in the Nusach it says, Acharis Kivereshis. In the end, like at the beginning. Others say, Acharis Kivereshis, without the base. The end, like the beginning. So what does it mean? It means that when Mashiach will come, the end of the redemption, God will, God will, um, will uh, say, well, okay. He will let us know, and God will then tell us, "Take a look, I redeemed you." In the end of history, kiveracious, like I did in the beginning of history. In other words, just like at the time when God took us out of Egypt, there was a very an amazing redemption. So we'll be in the end of days, which we are waiting for any moment. The question then becomes, he asks, we know from many sources that the redemption that is about to occur for Israel is going to be much bigger and much greater and far more spectacular than the redemption that we went out of Egypt. So much so, it's going to make the redemption of Egypt look like child's play. And so there is many sources for that idea. There's a verse saying that when Mashiach will come, 
uh, somewhere in the Tanakh it says, you will not say, God, my God, who took me out of Egypt. You will say, God, my God, who has gathered the exiles from across the entire world. So you see, we will, we will, we will, we will attribute uh, our relationship to Hashem. Now it's primarily based on the going out of Egypt. Then it was going to be based and and uh, celebrated as God's ingathering of the exile. So why would you say, "Behold, I redeemed you"? In the end, like the beginning, always when you compare one thing to something else, you're comparing a secondary thing to a primary thing. Over here, it's the opposite. The primary is going to be the future redemption. So to understand this, he gives a phenomenal explanation, which explains the name of Hanukkah, which is classic from Rabbi Yitzchak Bradichev because he is um, he is talking about amazingly the enormous love that God has. That he has enormous. Rabbi Yitzchak Bradichev was known for his extraordinary avas Yisrael love for a fellow Jew. So in this case, his love that uh, he reveals in this teaching he says when you take a look at the origins of creation what's the origins of the story what sparks creation every time a person does something every movement every every institution every um, organization uh, it starts it started as something that triggered him or her to do that we can trace every idea to the founding father of that idea and what triggered them. Certain circumstances caused them good things and bad things. Something triggers, and based on that trigger, uh, you know, certain, certain, tr- certain ideas and inspirations and whatever they are uh, take on, uh, come, into, come to fruition. Many of them don't go anywhere, but those that do. And some of them become super world world that sweep the world and they make, make but there's always somebody and for something that was caused and and, and and was sparked and sparked the idea what sparked so to speak what triggered god to create now when god is creating there's nothing outside of him so it has to be a self-triggering so what do we know that triggers what's what's what need or what desire was was what called forth in hashem to create so Rashi tells us, the Torah tells us just the story of, simply the Torah tells us the story that God created. That's the origins of creation. But the why of creation, that too must be stated in the Torah, but not so openly. But Rashi says it's in the first word of the Torah. We don't only have the story of the beginning, but we have what prompted the beginning. And Rashi says, Bereshit means for the sake of Israel and for the sake of the Torah. Put the two together, it means that God derives pleasure when people study Torah, when the Jewish people study Torah and do mitzvahs. And the mitzvahs that we do and the Torah that we study is what drove the entire creation into existence. It was that thought and that desire that made or that um, that that uh, that brought Hashem to create. And everything was created as a result of that desire. And therefore, everything must be consistent with the desire. So everything, and that's why the t- sages tell us that everything that God created, created for his honor. How? And somehow it is related to a fulfillment of a mitzvah. It's related to the observance, to the study of Torah. How, what, where, and when? Sometimes we see it. Sometimes it's only in God's understanding how these things connect. But there is always a connection. There is nothing in the world 
that just exists outside of that purpose. Now, if that's the case, that would lead us, in, in the words of Reb Levi Yitzhak of Radichev, to an amazing thing. Whenever we are actually doing a mitzvah, when, wherever we are studying Torah, like we're doing right now, we are actually um, fueling the creation. We are, we are validating, we are certifying, and we are um, realizing the intention of creation, thereby making the creation way stronger and much more blessed. We're drawing, because now the reason he, he God initially intended was for the sake that we should do the mitzvah. Now, a lot of the times, because we have free will, a person can choose not to do the mitzvah or to ignore or to be indifferent or to whatever, be slack off. Then there's a certain deadness in creation. When the Jewish people are not doing the mitzvah, there's a certain deadness because the creation is kind of existing, but without a, without a soul, without a, a, it's not providing the pleasure. When we are doing it, we're providing the pleasure. And if we're providing the pleasure, we're energizing the source of that pleasure to, to an, when a person has pleasure in something, then they're in, in, then they engage in whatever they're, they, 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 um, in that particular project with so much more energy. And therefore, he says, the outcome should be that when we're doing the mitzvah, we should be exuberant with joy. We should be ecstatic with joy. We should celebrate. We should be so happy because we realize that we are actually fueling the cosmos. We are bringing so much light and so much energy and so much holiness and so much uh, um, blessing to the world. And we, throughout the entire the cosmic order, through all the millions of worlds that exist, and then, of course, those blessings trickle down into this world. So there's no greater blessing in the world than a person learning Torah or doing a mitzvah. However, so as a result of that, we should we would expect that the world would enormously respect a Jew that's doing a mitzvah because then the world would realize that all the blessing that there is is dependent. All the blessings that the world needs for the 8 billion people that are on this planet to be fed, to be taken care of, to be have health and and uh, and comfort and pleasure and life, uh, life itself, for sure the sustenance and so on and so forth is all contingent on Jews doing mitzvahs. What that would mean is that every morning there should really or a person, a, a, a Jewish man, a woman, wake up, should look out of the window. There should be a whole line of people lining up to bring them a coffee. Because if I let me make you a coffee, if I made you a coffee, then maybe you can instead of you having to make your coffee on your own, you you have your coffee ready. You can actually sit and study them earlier. You can go pray. You can do a mitzvah, and so it is not just bringing people, you know, in everything. You know, stay home. I'll do your shopping for you. Just do mitzvahs. You know, bring us the blessings. That's the way it ought to be. Why is that not that way? We find totally opposite. Jews have been persecuted. Jews have been um, 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 uh, rejected. The Jewish people have been trodden upon, have experienced an enormous amount of persecution and suffering. And in many ways, there were all kinds of decrees and all kinds, if you know a little bit of Jewish history, against the observance of mitzvahs, like the story of Hanukkah. So if that's the case, why is that? 
shouldn't the world know and realize that the greatest blessing is mitzvahs? The reason, the, the reason for this is because there is a big disconnect. In other words, the intention that God created the world for the sake of the Torah and for the sake of the mitzvahs is hidden deep, 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 deep in the very, very, very beginning, 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 beginnings of of creation. That means in God's heart of hearts, way up there, that pleasure is felt over there. But it isn't necessarily felt and sensed at the outer, 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 outer rungs of creation. As, As creation is a long, long chain of an evolution of worlds, and many, many, between these levels, there are many, many partitions and blockages and filters and screens. And those screens block that the initial intention should be felt. And as a result of that, by the time you get down to our physical world, many times there is no trace at all at times. Actually, most of the time, until the days of Mashiach, it is not sensed within the world that the purpose of creation is for the Torah and for the mitzvahs. So the world goes off and the world the and people that living in the world and so on and so forth are experiencing their existence unrelated to mitzvahs meaning which is not true but that's the false um sense of security a false sense of meaning of 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 of, of existence that is divorced and separated from the true purpose of in as much as it is assisting the Torah and, and, and the mitzvahs, it deserves to exist. Other than that, it has no real true existence, but the world doesn't know that. It's oblivious to it, which means there is, in the words of the Rebbe Yitzhak, there is a great disparity, a great separation between the beginning and the end. So when the times, when at times in history, where the initial intention of creation is felt throughout the entire projection projected order that intention is felt through and through and it reaches the actual a final product the final physical existence then the physical existence nature itself um torah torah study and mitzvah observance nature itself assists Nature meaning even even the physical world itself, unrelated to human beings, will bend itself and go out of its way to assist a mitzvah to be done. One of the things I noticed when we were saying Halal on Hanukkah is that when we describe the great miracles in the second passage of Halal, and this is, when we describe the enormous miracles that happened on Hanukkah, we say, I'm not on Hanukkah, on when we went out of Egypt, we say when the Jewish people went out of Egypt, it says, Hayam Ravayanois, the sea ran and escaped. Hayardain, the Jordan River, Tisa Liachar leaped backwards. Haharim the mountains, referring to Sinai, Tirkaduchielim were was leaping like were leaping like uh like uh like rams. It doesn't describe anywhere that God is making it happen, that God is splitting the sea. In Exodus and the parish, it does say though, but in Tehillim and Psalms, it seems to imply that these things were happening on their own. The reason for that is because that's really true is that when nature is suddenly synchronized, when the physical world is synchronized with its origins, with its purpose, when there isn't a cognitive dissidence between the, the, the in, in, in existence, but there is a unification between the beginning and the end, 
than nature itself. And definitely all the inhabitants of the world are very, very um, motivated and excited to be of whatever kind of assistance. Like it says, when Mashiach will come, people will line up to help help mitzvahs, to help not just build the temple, but to help every possible, to help every Jew do a mitzvah will be like the biggest honor. That's the way it, is, it ought to be. That's the way it should be. So he says, that's the meaning. That when is their redemption? But in exile, God forbid, hold on, in exile, when the beginning and the end are not unified, then uh, the, the, the nature is, 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 uh, remains stubborn and doesn't always um, facilitate the observance of mitzvahs. So that's the meaning of the verse. Hein ga'alti eschem, behold, I have redeemed you, achris kadeshis. That means when does redemption happen? Achris means when the very final stage of existence, kivereshis is like the beginning. That means that the physical earth is consistent with the initial inner thought that God had at the very, very beginning of creation. So therefore he says, when do we have them? When is an opportune time <clears throat> to um, synchronize the end with the beginning? To bring forth the deepest inner core. See, you realize how the Hasidic teachings are all similar? The, the first teaching we had from the Tzver Shlomo was saying the same idea. But he's talking about the inner soul, the Shemen, the inner oil of the soul being revealed in the outer consciousness of the human being. Our godly heart core, our spark, our pintalayid, our deepest point emanating outward into our entire consciousness. And here we're talking about the same idea within creation, that the initial divine um, spark of creation is felt outside. Hanukkah, he says, is a time when that is the most likely to happen. Why? Hanukkah means dedication. And dedication merely means beginning. When do you do a dedication? In the beginning. You dedicate a new home called Chanukah Sabah, if you move into a house, so it's a custom to make a little a little fabring and a little party, invite people over, speak some words of Torah, have a little, say, l'chaim, give blessings, when a person moves into a new house, or you start a new shul, or whatever it is, it's an inauguration thing. Inauguration is the beginning. Chanukah is the inauguration. What does that mean? We come back to the inauguration. We come back to the beginning. Similar to Rosh Hashanah when we're coming to the beginning. But we're trying to bring the very beginning down to be felt down here. So it's, and just like we see that when there is a beginning of any project, at the very beginning, at the very onset, the intention and the, um, the, the, uh, the purpose for why you're, you, you've, um, you're, you're, you've created this or, or built this or whatever it is, is very, very sharp in your mind. It's very clear. You know, there's because you're right at the beginning. A lot of times, people start a business or you start a whatever, and 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 you know why you did it. You know what your intention is. You know what, what how you want the business to run, or you know how you want your organization to run. But in the course of time, you start bringing in because of certain necessities, certain whatever. You start you bring in your brother-in-law to help you, and you bring in your. Uh, you're, uh, you're, you're uh, a new partner and you need investors because you need money and you start, and these people start having opinions and they have certain ideas. And before you know it, <clears throat> it can be like 10 years down the road, the whole, the whole project that you're done, the whole business that is being run or the whole organization or whatever it is, is completely different than what you intended it to be. 
That's painful. It's not easy to keep something to its state, to its ultimate purity, what the initial intention was. So in our case, Hanukkah, we go, we're back to the initial intention. And on, and when we light, this is so beautiful. He says, when we light the menorah and we're saying, Lahadlik Ner Hanukkah, to illuminate the lamp of Hanukkah, what it really means, it means to illuminate the light. The lamp is what gives light. To illuminate all the worlds with Hanukkah, with the initial thought that God has to create, which means the dedication of creation should be felt to be illuminated. And, and when we, where do we light the menorah? We light the menorah by your, by the doorway going to the street. That means, and not only should a person feel it, the purpose of life, purpose of creation in my own home, but that the people in the marketplace, the people on the street, people on Fifth Avenue in New York, people on uh, in, 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 in on Hollywood Boulevard, the people that are literally out in 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 in, in Paris, in London, on the streets of Bangkok or whatever it is. Over there, in the marketplaces of the world, it should be felt and sensed the true purpose of existence. Traffic should come to a total standstill because a Jew is running and he might get be late for Shabbos and he has to get home so that he can uh, he or she can start uh, can can bring in Shabbos and uh, not God forbid get stuck and then you know like like sometimes there's a Shabbos rush or just giving an example that's the way it should be. And that's the way it will be after Mashiach comes. It's not about the Jewish people. It's about the Jewish people learning Torah and doing mitzvahs and connecting the world for all of humanity to an enormous, great divine flow. And that's the power of Hanukkah, according to the great and saintly, one of the teachings of Rabbi Levi Yitzhak of Bardich. Now we move on to a third teaching. This is from the Bnei Yisachar, the great Rebbe of Dinav. Bnei Saskar had a, so uh, he talks very, very much, he has a very special connection to Hanukkah because he was told by his Rebbe, the Chayzer from Lublin, that the reason, he was wondering why he has such a, such a strong enlightened regarding Hanukkah. Why? From all the holidays, he feels so much light in his Neshama Hanukkah. So he was on his way to visit his Rebbe, his teacher, this is before he himself became a great Rebbe. So when he was on his way to think, he, he was questioning that. And he was wondering, maybe he's really, he said, I, he felt maybe he's, maybe he comes from the Hashmanayim, from the Maccabees. But he knew that can't be because he's not a Kohen. So he was trying to figure out why, what's his deep connection. And when he arrived to his Rebbe, before he even said anything, the Chayza from Lublin, is known as the seer, who can see thoughts, and can see the, the hidden the hidden things, said to him, the reason why you, you he says, you really come from the tribe of Yisachar. That's your, that's your origins. And you were part of the Beisden of the, um, the Beisden of the Chashmanayim. The Chashmanayim had a Beisden. They had a court who were, who were the ones who instituted Hasan, uh, Hanukkah. So you were the one of those who instituted in your previous incarnation. You were one of the people who, who instituted Hanukkah. And that's why you have so much Hanukkah light. And that's why he named his book Bnei Yisachar, Yisachar. That's the name of his sefer, which he writes not just about Hanukkah, but all the all the seasons of the year. Anyways, regarding Hanukkah, he says a phenomenal idea, and that is that mentioned right in the beginning of the class that Hanukkah is the hidden light that was present in the world before 
before well, at the onset of creation. It says in the first day of creation, it says, God said, let there be light. But that light that it's talking about right in the first day of creation is not the light that we see. It's not sunlight. Because sun, the sun was only put into the orbit on Wednesday. God said, let there be luminaries in the sky. So where was the light? But this light was a purely godly light. And it was such a powerful light, way, 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 way brighter than our light. In such a way where it enabled vision to be seen from one end of the world to the other end of the world. It doesn't only mean to be able to see across the planet that we can see from, from here, from uh, from California to see China or whatever. That it means that as well, but it also means to be able to see into all the spiritual dimensions. One can see from the highest to the across all of existence. Our vision, we, we there was no secrets. You can see everything. Then it says God saw the world is not worthy for it, at least time being, and Hashem hid that light. Where did he hide it? He hid it in the Torah. And then he gave us a different light. On Wednesday, Hashem gave us sunlight. And that was the light that we have, sun, the light of the sun and the light of the moon and so on. However, it says that Hashem brought the light back on Friday. The original light in honor of Adam, Hashem wanted to treat him and give him that light, at least for the first day that he's around. And then um, Adam Adam sinned and he forfeited the light on the very first day of his creation. But Hashem didn't take it away until after Shabbos. So it comes out according to this that on Friday day and then Saturday uh, and then Friday night, which is really the night of the eve of Shabbos, and then Shabbos day, during that entire period of time, this original light was shining. And then on Matzai Shabbos, which means Saturday night, when Shabbos came to an end, it became an extremely dark. And that's when Adam got very terrified. And he was shaking in the cold and terrified. And that's when God showed him how to create fire. And that's why we make a special blessing on fire on Saturday night during the Havdalah ceremony. In any case, comes out. Of, he, he brings from Repinchas of Karitz, the great Hasidic masters, that according to that, there were 36 hours in which Adam was living in the light. 36, and he says, those 36 hours of the Erhaganas, they appear to us in our 36 candles that we light on Hanukkah. On Hanukkah, we light the first day one, second day two, third day three. And as we conclude, we write, we, we light all 36. So that amazing light is revealed to us on Hanukkah. But then he continues. And he says, this will also explain an interesting thing. Why on Hanukkah, we have something called, we we, we don't just do the mitzvah, but we do the mitzvah in a way of hidur. And we call it mahadrin or mahadrin mina mahadrin. What does that mean? It means that initially the way the sages instituted to celebrate Hanukkah is to light one flame every single night of Hanukkah. That's it. Eight nights. One, one, one. You light a lamp. That's it. You light, you light a candle. But then the sages said, if you want to do the mitzvah in a beautiful way, you should light one for every person in the family. If you want to do the mitzvah in the most um, beautiful of beautiful way, then do the mitzvah by adding a new candle every day. Okay, that's the guard. And today, and the way we do it, everybody accepted to do the mitzvah, not just beautiful, but beautiful of beautiful. Mahadrin mina mahadrin, those who do the mitzvah in the most splendid way. But he asked the question, why do we use the term splendor? Why don't we use those who do the mitzvah more cautiously, more devoted? like the word medaktikin, 
should have been a mitaktik and you find that or vosikin sages use for for people who want to daven and the best uh, do the prayers in the in the in the in the best best It's okay. Those who want to do the prayers in the best, best, best way possible, the sages refer to it as uh, davening vasikin. You, you daven a few minutes before before sunrise. You do uh, shema and the shemona esra. You start. With, that's the best way of praying. So they call it vasikin. How come we call it mahadran? So he brings an interesting thing. He brings what it says in. Um, Give me one second, and I'll find it. Rabbi, he brings a midrash. The midrash says, "Rabbi Embracious uh, Rabba, Rabbi Shua ben Yoyot Sadok asked Shmuel ben Achmeni. Two sages were talking, and he said to them, "I heard that you are very, very knowledgeable in Agada, in the in the in the um, more esoteric elements of Torah, or the midrash element of Torah. Um, from where was light created? I don't know what. That's the question." Where was light created from? I mean, you can ask the question where anything else was created from. But particularly, he's asking, tell me the origins of light. So he said, well, Malamed, this teaches you, that God garbed himself or cloaked himself in a white garment, and he shined, ziv, the shine, of his splendor, from one end of the world to the other end of the world. What seems to be implying is that God is beyond light. In order to to bring about light, Hashem cloaks himself in a white garment, and through the white garment, he, he shines light. And that's where light comes from. Now, the sages use the term on that light, ziv, a radiance, hadaroi of his splendor. Now, since Hanukkah, we are capturing that light in our menorah, and that's why it says that when you on Hanukkah you sh- you should spend as much time as you can looking at those powerful flames and not ordinary flames. Obviously, one can look at them as just a regular flame, but it's not. These are holy flames, and in that light that they're giving off is the light. Is this light? It's God's splendor. And um, since on Hanukkah, where this is the light of Hanukkah, the lights of Hanukkah are the splendor. Is this original light, which is from Hashem's splendor, and it's called splendor is the word hadaroi. That's why when we do the mitzvah, we do mahadrin min mahadrin. We use the term because we are doing splendor of splendor by adding lights every day till we get to 36. We get all the 36 hours which in which that light was shining. This is a splendid teach a splendid teaching. But then he adds something really beautiful. A little bit more drashic, different style than we're used to. But let me let me share this because it's just too beautiful not to share. Um, he explains. Usually, when we have a miracle that happens, the miracle comes to bring about a salvation. In Egypt, we had plagues. We were in trouble. God intervened, brought plagues, and that we were chased by the Egyptians. We needed help. God split the sea. Um, Purim, we were, Haman wanted to kill out all the Jewish people. God brought about a whole series of events. And Esther was taken as queen and so on and so forth. And this led to the event of the salvation. 
but Hanukkah, we had we had an we had the we, the Jewish people stood up against the Greeks. They revolted. They fought a war. It was miraculous war because there was only a few of them fighting massive Greek armies. They won the war. So God had sent already the salvation. After the war was over, the great miracle of Hanukkah with the oil happened. So it's the only time that we have a miracle that's coming afterwards. So he explains that the miracle was really an interpretation to explain to the Jewish people why they won the war. A great divine salvation came to help them. But what was, not just why, what was the content of their salvation? What happened? God was just communicating to them, I want you to know what took place. The Greek, the, the Jewish people at that time were in a very, spiritually in a very, 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 very dark place. As we discussed earlier, their souls were polluted. But that came about because the Greek, the Greeks, um, they mixed with Greek culture and they started copying the Greeks and they engaged in all kinds of sins. The sinfulness made them very, very, very filthy, sadly, and very, very impure, as we discussed earlier. In that state, they could not have a divine salvation. They couldn't have a miracle because becoming so impure was not allowing them for the miracle to happen. For the miracle to occur, they needed a cleansing. They couldn't clean themselves. God had to clean them. They were so impure that their cleansing had to come from above. Now, how did Hashem clean the Jewish people? So he he says what happened was was something very, very, very interesting, and that is there was a lot of a lot of um, accusations going on in heaven at that time because they were so sinful, and we know there is a a force of this constantly accountability. And there is a prosecution that takes place in heaven in front of a heavenly tribunal and ultimately in front of God, and which is constantly bringing all the actions of people in front of Hashem. And um, things were looking really bad. And God had to do something in order to, to save the day. And what happened was as follows. There is a verse that says, um, he bases it on a question that he asks in the Al-Hanisim, which is the special edition that we say in, in the special edition that we say in the Shemona Esrei, for Hanukkah, we say Al-Hanisim. And over there we say, after we describe how terrible it was in, the, in those days, we say, and you, Rabbim, with your great mercy, you stood up for them, in their time of their trouble. We mentioned that God stood for them. He asks the question, why do we use the term he stood for them? You assisted them. You sent them a salvation. What do you mean you stood for them? You stood for them. He explains it as follows. Um, there is a verse that says, Hashem says to the Jewish people, please let us go. And let us argue it out. Let us have a debate. That's what God says. Let's have a let's have a confrontation. And then he says, the, the continuation of the verse, if your sins will be like red thread, like snow, they will become white. Simply, it's a beautiful verse. We say it on Yom Kippur all the time. What is it saying? God is saying, if your sins, if you will be so red with sins, you will be so guilty, I will whiten you with innocence. I will turn you white like snow. 
But then what's the introduction of the verse? please go We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna argue it out. What do you mean we're gonna argue it out? It's not an argument. God is doing something really kind. What's this? Let's have a confrontation. It seems like it's gonna get really difficult because God is gonna confront us. And now he says, I'm making you all clean. It explains like this. <laughs> There's two ways we can be judged above. We can either be judged by God or we can be judged by the heavenly tribunal. Usually we say it's much better to be judged by God himself because God has infinite mercy. But there are times where God wants to switch things around. Because even when God has infinite mercy and kindness, if the, if the sins and if the, if the guilt is so beyond, beyond, um, beyond excusable, then God has to play by the rules. He can't just dismiss it all. He can't knock it all off and say, you know, I'm, I'm just doing what I want. It doesn't work that way. Hashem set up a certain system, which God has held to, to that system. It's a system that he himself submits himself to. And the prosecuting, the, the heavenly prosecution holds God to that, to, to those things. He can't exonerate without a reason. So what God does is as follows. God follows the Torah because abides by the Torah. In Torah law, there is a very, very interesting teaching, an interesting law. And that is when two people show up to a court and one of them is very wealthy and the other one is a pauper. They have an argument. The rich man says, you borrowed money from me, you owe me money. The poor man says, I didn't or I paid you back or whatever. We can understand. They're having an argument. They show up to court. The rich man says, the poor man with his bicycle scratched his, uh, his uh, Mercedes. And he wants to pay. He wants to pay. He doesn't want to pay. He says, "I didn't do it. Or whatever it was your fault." They come to court. Um, so the judge. So the, the, there's a, an interesting thing. This guy's dressed with his really, really, really fancy schmancy clothing, Italian suits. The other guy's coming in in tattered clothing. The the court needs to be able to be completely impartial and completely and not be influenced by any anything else but. The facts. Torah is very, very, very strict that you, when you look at a at a case, you have to be very, very, very true just to the facts. You can't be moved by either the poverty. You can't be moved by compassion. As a judge, you can't be moved by compassion. You can't either be persuaded by someone's power. So if this guy is so wealthy, and you might be leaning to uh, find favor in his eyes because of his wealth. If the guy, or you might have a, have a broken heart, help, you know, this rich guy, what does he need? You know, fix your own car. You know, this poor guy, he doesn't have anything. He can't feed his family. You're going you're gonna to pull out from him his meager, you know, the last, last dollar out of his pocket to pay you for your little scratch that you have. So you might be persuaded by, by compassion. So in order to help with the impartiality, the in, the, to, be, to be able to judge a case based on the facts itself, on the merits of the case, not on anything else, the, we turn to the wealthy person and we say to him as follows. Um, you have two choices. Either take this poor man with you and bring him to your wardrobe, dress him up with a fancy suit just like yours and a nice shirt, give him a nice tie, give him a nice pair of shoes, brush him up, get him to look like really, 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 really sharp and then come back because you're going to be, both of you are going to look like wealthy people. You don't want to do that you can go visit the poor man and he'll give you his extra pair of tattered tattered clothing or we will we will we will go to the uh, closest um, what is it called um 
thrift shop and will pick up some old torn clothing and you're going to walk in looking the same. Basically, we need, when you're coming in front of the court, you need to look similar to the other guy. The reason is, even though the judge will remember that this guy is wealthy and this guy is poor, but the eyes are so powerful, vision is so powerful. So if I'm looking at two people and I'm seeing them looking the same, I'm okay. I can, I, again, we're talking about a judge who's trying to judge the right way. The problem is when he's, when his eyes the whole time as he's listening to the case is seeing the poor man and his heart is melting or seeing the wealthy man and he's being intimidated by his wealth. So he's having a hard time. So we have to make them look equal. You can't tell the poor man to go dress himself up with the rich man. He doesn't have the money. So you have to tell the rich man to make that choice. Either dress yourself similar to the poor guy or at least, you know, have this, Dress him up um, like yourself so that when we're coming to the case, we can see the two of you in equal stature. So God says to the Jewish people as follows. When he sees that as a judge, he can't exonerate. He says, you know what? There's another way to do this. Let's go, me and you. I'm taking you to court. You owe me. You sinned against me. And I'm charging you, whatever it is. You need to, instead of God, that's why God uses the word please. Let's do it. I know you would like to be judged by me, but in this case, I think it'll be much better off if we go to the court. The reason is, that's why God says, please go. Let's have a confrontation, me and you. We'll come as two litigants. Now, the high tribunal, the court will say to God, listen here, you're the rich man. You're clean. You're beautiful. They're all tattered with dirty clothing. We We can't judge a case of two litigants when they look so different. God is true, he's real, he's bright, his infinite light is shining. We're coming in all tattered and broken and scarred and look like God forbid what we look like. So the court then will have to say to God as follows, you're the rich man. Either you dress them in your clothing or you dress in their clothing. But God can't dress in our clothing because our clothing is sinfulness. And God can't dress, oh, what do you say? Sins are considered red, like uh, you know, dirt, filthy clothing, and mitzvahs are considered white clothing. So God is, of course, dressed in purity and holiness. We sometimes get ourselves dressed in unholy things. So God says to the wealth, so the, the court will have to say to Hashem, dress them in your garments. Now, God obviously couldn't dress us himself in our garments in that sense. So in that sense, he has no choice but to dress us in his dress. If we're dressed in his garments, then we are dressed in the brightest clothing in the world. We're dressed, as we spoke earlier, it says when God created light, he cloaked himself in a white garment. Like it says in Daniel, the his garment is like white snow, with his supernal infinite brightness of light, where from all light comes from that garment. And that's the light he dresses the Jewish people up. And as he dresses his children up in that light, now our sins are gone and we look like him. So there's much, obviously not much to, 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 and that's the meaning of the verse. Come and let us have a confrontation. If your sins will be red, like I will turn them to snow because I will, I, I will stand side by side with you as two litigants. And according to Torah law, I will wash your sins. And that's what happened during the time of Hanukkah. And that's why the, the verse in the Alanisim says, and you with your great mercy, you stood with them. Standing is a, a term that is used when two people come to court. They stand in trial, the two litigants, because they're not allowed to sit. 
there is they're called to stand in front of the of the judges and that's how the salvation came so the whole miracle of Hanukkah came because of this infinite light of God's splendor which is considered God's garment in which he dressed us and that's why right after the miracle that light revealed itself to us in the menorah Hashem was showing us what he dressed us in now to conclude his amazing teaching he says that's also the reason why that is also the reason why the miracle of Hanukkah is a miracle that is not allowed to be written down. It's the one, no meaning not, not allowed to. The sages say that the, the last one, all of our festivals and all of our holidays are in scripture. They're written somewhere. Uh, the, the, the three biblical, the, 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 the Pesach, Shulis, and Sukkot are written in the Torah. Also, Shoshoshani Yom Kippur. Purim is, is written in Esther, which is also one of the scriptures. Hanukkah, but the sages say Purim is the last miracle that was given to be written down after that the hanukkah miracle wasn't written down in scripture anymore it's only in the talmud the miracle because it's after the days. simply because it's after the days of the prophets but the great b'nai sachar in his teaching says no 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 the reason it wasn't written is not because it's happened later, it wasn't so great, it's quite on the contrary, it's much higher than all the other miracles. What does it mean written? The written word is the concealment that hides the in this great bright original light. Because we said earlier, when God said he took, he said the world is not worthy for the light, let me conceal it. Where did he conceal it? He considered he concealed it in the words of the Torah. So great, great holy tzaddikim, great righteous people, saintly people are able to read the words of the Torah, crack open their letters, and reveal the hidden light that's inside of them. But we don't. We read the letters. We read stories. We're not really seeing subconsciously where some of that light is filtering into our souls. But consciously, we don't really see it. Because the... The, the the words themselves are what are hiding the light. What did we say the miracle of Hanukkah? Where did the miracle of Hanukkah happen? It happened from the light before it was hidden. God actually brought us the light itself, which means not dressed inside the letters, the light pre-letter, pre-investment or concealment in the letters. That's why the miracle of Hanukkah can't be written. The moment you're going to give it words, you're going to be concealing it in the words. The words can't can't conceal it. So it's beyond. And, 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 and a support teaching to that, he brings the idea, this is so phenomenal, he brings the idea that um, the sages tell us, with 10 utterances, God created the world. That's what the sages say. With 10 utterances, the Mishnah, the ethics of fathers. In ten utterances, God created the world. But if you take a, a, the book of Genesis, you take Beratius, and you start reading, where are the ten utterances? You only find nine. Nine times it says, Vayomer. God said, uh, um, only nine times. So where's the tenth? So the sages say, the word Beratius is, 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 is also a utterance. But if that's the case, so why doesn't it say Vayomer? Why does it say Beratius? Beratius means in the beginning. If it's one or the utterance, there's many explanations in it. But today we're going to have this 
amazing teaching. So he brings from Reb Dov Ber, the great Magid of Mizrich, fascinating teaching. What's the teaching? He says that the first thing God created when he created the world was he created the words with which he would create the world. Hashem is beyond words. He created language, and through the language, the language of the holy tongue, he created the world. So the first thing Hashem needed to create was the language, and that's the meaning of Bereshis bara elokim. In the beginning, Hashem created S. It simply says S It's the earth, the heaven and earth. But the word S is referring to the letters. God initially created the letters because the word S is made up of an aleph and a tuf, which is the first letter of the of the of the Hebrew alphabet and the last letter. So Bereshis in the beginning bara S. Hashem created S, he created the letters, and once he created the letters, through the letters he created the world. So that's why the first utterance, which is the utterance in which God is creating the letters, it can't say God spoke, because without letters, who how's he speaking? It's still before words. Once there is letters, he's speaking the letters. There's no letters yet. So it's before. So therefore it just says, in the beginning, because it's still before the creation of letters. That's the meaning. So that's the same idea of Hanukkah, that Hanukkah is before creation. And before is coming from a light that's pre-letters, and that's why it wasn't written down. And this also is connected to the concept that we know that um, parallel to the 10 utterances of creation, the building of the Mishkan, the building of the tabernacle, was similar to the creation of heaven and earth. It says that Bitzalel, who was the architect and the build, the chief constructor of the of the temple of the of the Mishkan, he knew all the secrets with which God created heaven and earth. He knew the entire code of creation, and he intended when he built the Mishkan, he took all of creation and put it into that tabernacle. Tabernacle was a concentration. It was like a a mini cosmos. So, and it and it explains that over there too, it's, there's ten things that God spoke to be made, and it says that those ten instructions correspond to the ten instructions of creation. Which one corresponds to Bereshis? The making of the menorah. The menorah corresponds to Bereshis. And now it makes perfectly sense because the menorah is a light that is from before creation, Bereshis. It's, it's like the Bereshis, which Bereshis is pre-letter. That's the idea. What an awesome teaching. Remember this for next year, Hanukkah. And now we go on to the teachings of the Rebbe's of Bills, which is going to be four on the list. After this, we're going to move pretty fast. Um, the Bells of Rebbe's, they hid... They didn't, te- they didn't speak so esoteric, mostly. They tried to speak far more simpler. Um, so in their teachings, I'd like to share, it's like um, very, just little nuggets of insight. In, in hidden in their words is very, very deep thoughts. But um, in general, it's, it uh, seems uh, much simpler. Well, let's take a look. So the, the Belzer Rebbe says, the first Belzer Rebbe, Rebbe Shalom of Bells, teaches that we have to, Hanukkah happened way after the Torah was 
given to us. Hanukkah happened in the end of the middle of the of the of the second temple era. As we spoke earlier just now, it was after scripture is already closed. But yet everything there can't be a thing that's not hinted to in the Torah. So where is Hanukkah hinted to in the Torah? So he brings that in in the end of the book of Numbers, in the end of Bamidbar, in the last Torah portion, it describes all the journeys of the Jewish people. Now, obviously, if it tells us the journeys of the Jewish people, when they went out of Egypt, included in those journeys are um, 42 uh, are forty-two encampments. They camped, they went from here, they went there. But you have to understand that, we, we have to understand that in those 42 encampments, probably contain within them the entire history of Israel, of the Jewish people, until the days of Mashiach. Now, it's, it's the simple meaning, it's 42 places they wandered in the desert. But the deeper story, it's the story of the future. So he says, when you count from where they went, they went from one place, they camped in the next place, and they can, it names 42 names. One of the cities that are named, well, not cities, one of the places in the desert that, that are named is a place called Hashmaina. Now, Hashmaina is the 25th place they camped. What's Hashmaina? He says, is alluding to Hanukkah. Hanukkah happens on the 25th day of the it's, the, it's the one holiday that we celebrate on the 25th day. It's actually hinted to in the word Hanukkah. Chanu, they finished the war. They rested in the war. The war was over. Chaf hey on the 25th day. It's the 25th, the only holiday we have on the 25th day. So the 25th journey that is mentioned over there is a place called Hashmaina, which Hashmona is the same word as Hashmenoim. Hashmenoi, which are the ones who were the heroes of the Hanukkah story. So you got Hanukkah in the Torah. You have to have very pure eyes to be able to catch that. Most people would miss that. When he read, he found it. Now he continues and he says, Hanukkah usually comes out in the, in the weekly Torah portion of Pasha's Miketz, like this year. This past week, not this week. This is Vayigash this week. Last week was Pashas Miketz. Where is Hanukkah hinted to in Pashas Miketz? Well, he finds it as well. Very, very interestingly. In the end of every Torah portion, the Torah there is in, in the, in the, in the Chumash, you'll see a short, there's a line. I don't know who added it. Must have been added by some great people a long time ago who had a lot of inside information. <laughs> And they they give a number of how many verses there are in every Torah portion. Like in the end of Beresha, say, this Torah portion, I'm just throwing out a number, 126 verses. Pashas Noach has 132 verses. Lach lecha, like that. And they also write a word in order to remember how many psukim. They give you a word. Usually it's a word, a, na- a name, a, a word that we don't, just a, ma- a bunch of letters, which are the letters Gematria, the numeric value, is that number. It's sometimes the name of an angel or something like that. That's in every Torah portion. In in, um, in Miketz, there is an addition. In addition to tell you how many verses there are, it also tells you how many words there are. I'm sorry, not words. Yeah, yeah, how many words there are. It says, Alpayim Chafei, 2025. So, why Parshas Miketz is the only one where it also tells you now, by the way, I looked in one Chumash, I didn't see it, but in the other Chumash I looked, it did see it. So it's not in every Chumash, but <clears throat> in the old, uh, many of the Chumashim, it has, on Patras Miketz, also a number of how many Pesukim. 
It says 2025. And he says, very simple. 25 is the 25th day of Hanukkah. 2000. How many, how many lamps do we light on Hanukkah? Eight. Remember, we spoke the original mitzvah, one lamp a night. And oh, when we count them all together, it's 36. But really, it's eight days of Hanukkah. Eight days you'll light the candles. So eight. eight and what's a, a, a candle in Hebrew? Ner. Ner is, to, ner is the numeric value of ner. is 250. Eight times ner. Eight times 250 is 2,000. So 2,000, when it says alpayim, 2,000 words, these are the two, the, the, the eight lamps, which each lamp of Hanukkah contains 250 words in Pashas Mikades. And when do we access and when do we begin experiencing those 2,000, uh, those, those eight lamps, which are in those 2,000 words on the 25th. So it's 25, 2,000, 2,025. And he continues. And he says now, on the Hanukkah reading, every day on Hanukkah, we read um, a special Torah reading. The Torah reading that we read on Hanukkah is from the dedication of the Nisim, of the, of the princes, when they, when they dedicated the tabernacle. So they, they, they dedicated the tabernacle and the princes, they brought certain offerings. So over there in that and that, so and there were 12 offerings by the 12 tribes. By the, so the first eight days of Hanukkah, every day we read one of those offerings. And the last day of Hanukkah, yesterday, we read the last four of them. We read five, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, five. And that's the reading. Now in these offerings, it describes what they brought. They all brought a certain gift to God. Some of them were animals, some of them were flour mixed with oil and they brought a certain dish a silver a silver tray and a and a and a, and a, and a gold spoon and so on and so on. each one they brought the same thing it's a very lavish gift and we read it every day he says when you analyze those words you find all the laws of hanukkah the laws of lighting the menorah is hinted to in the words so you would think that you're reading it you know it's not it just has to do with gifts but he, the Belzarebi's eyes were able to detect the Shulchan Aruch of Hanukkah, the laws of Hanukkah. The laws of Hanukkah all described inside um, this, uh, the, the, inside the, the, the Chumash. So he says, for example, the Pasuk says, Kaf Achas Asara Zav so he says, which means one gold spoon that was filled with katoras. He says the word kaf is made up of two letters, chaf and a pe, which stands for chaf psula. If you put your menorah higher than 20 cubits, psula, it's puzzle. The menorah must be put lower. You can't put your menorah up higher than 20 cubits. If menorah must be, you, because it's be, if, you, if you have a, you know, uh, I know there's public menorahs they put up high, but that's, no one is fulfilling their mitzvah with that menorah. If you're fulfilling your menorah mitzvah, it has to be lower than 20 cubits high, which is about 30 feet, because if you put it up so high, people won't see it. The next one, the next word of the word is achas, kaf achas, one spoon. He says the word achas is aleph ches tav, which can be read as an abbreviation for aleph ches timna, which means... There is an argument in the say in when we spoke earlier that when you want to do the mitzvah in the most beautiful way, you add every day. 
But there was that's according to the base Hillel. The school of Hillel says we add every day a candle. The school of Shammai, which was different rabbis, they believe that you should do the opposite. The first night of Hanukkah, you start with eight. Then you the next night of Hanukkah, you do seven. And then you do six, five, four, three, two, one. Till the last night of Hanukkah, you do one. Today's days, everybody follows Hillel because that's the way it was accepted, the law. So he says that too is hinted to over here. Aleph, from the word Acha, stands for Aleph Ches, Timna. When you're lighting your menorah, the way you should Timna means to count. The way you count is from one to eight, not from eight to one. Next one. Um, the word Asara, Kaf Achas Asara, was, which means one spoon that weighed 10. Asara is 10. He takes the word Asara. Every letter becomes the acronym for a word. It's a code. It's telling you. What is it telling you? How long can you light your menorah? That means the menorah must be lit in the evening. But till when? Can you light your menorah 3 o'clock in the morning, 4 o'clock, and it's still dark? And he says, no. The, the law is you have to light the menorah only as long as there are still people out in the street. In the marketplace, still people busy. Not talking to Manhattan where there's people walking all night long. Talking in, 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 a, in a regular city, you know, people are out. No one is in the market anymore. 11, 12 o'clock at night, the streets are empty. So you can only light it until there's no more people on the street. The sages use the term, until there won't be any more people out in the street, in the marketplace. So he says, the word asara stands for, ayin is ad, shin is shetichle, resh stands for regel, and he is hashuk, which means ad shetichle regel men hashuk, until all feet, literally the words of the sages, uh, which they say that law is hinted to in the word Asara. That we read on Hanukkah every day. The next word is Asara Zav. Zav means gold. But his interpretation as he reads it, he says, when do you start lighting your Hanukkah menorah? Zav. Zav stands for Zmanoi Bein Hashmashais. The time is at twilight. After the sun sets, when it starts getting started, and the night starts coming in, that's your main time of lighting the menorah. The word malaya, which is the next word, he doesn't give an interpretation what it means. I guess everybody can, you can figure out and try to crack the code on that one. But the last word is ketores. Ketores, he breaks up to mean as follows. Karav tadlik rachik tefach. Which means, when you light your menorah, do it next next to the door. But don't go very close. It should be tefach. It should be within the first cubit of the doorway. Because the law is you're supposed to put it out towards the street, at the entranceway, or to the entrance of the house, right within the hand's breadth of the of the door post. One side is a mezuzah, and the other side is the menorah. So that's what the word ketorah stands for, karev tadlik, make it burn close, close to the Pesach, within a tefach, within um, within the hand breadth of the wall. That's from the Belzareb. Okay, I had a lot more to teach from the Belzarebas, but we're going to leave it for now. And we're going to move into the teaching of the great and saintly Sfas Emes of Gur. He says, Hanukkah, we're lighting, um, Hanukkah, we're lighting, um, we celebrate with lamps. We're lighting Nerois, which represent the light of mitzvahs. He says, why Hanukkah is celebrated with the Ner, with the mitzvah, with, the, with lamps? Why are we celebrating our spiritual salvation with the Ner, with, by lighting lamps? Fascinating teaching. Um, the Greeks, 
according when we look in the sages, we see that the main thing about the Greeks were they they brought darkness to the world. They're hinted to actually in the beginning in Genesis, when it says there was darkness on the face of the earth until God said, Let there be light. This darkness the sages say is referring to the Greeks. They made dark. Why did they make dark? Because light is Torah and mitzvot, it's the spiritual light, the light of the divine, which shines in the world through Torah and mitzvot. Um, since the Greeks were the ones who fought, it wasn't a physical battle, it wasn't a racial um, war, it wasn't to destroy the Jewish people's race from the world. The Greeks actually appreciated the Jewish people. They saw them as smart, intelligent people and felt, but they wanted to impose their philosophy and wipe out our spiritual connection to God. That's why they're darkness. So we fight it with lamp, with nair. But where is really that light coming from? What's the nair? So the Sfasema says an amazing teaching. It says like this, the, the lamp, the, the, the essence of your light is really not the mitzvah. It's not the Torah. That's not the essence of the light. The essence of the light is the light of your own soul. A man and a woman, he says, when Hanukkah says, when the Torah, when they instruct us to light Hanukkah candles, the sages say the initial mitzvah was to light one candle per family, per household. The term they use is ner ish ubeisai. A nair for a man and his household. But the word bias, which means a house, also means a woman. It means a lamp for the man and the woman, for the man and his wife. Now, so what does that mean, he says? This, in Hebrew, the, a, a man, a male, is called an ish, and a woman is called an isha. The, the etymology of the word ish and isha are both ish. There's ish, fire. Fire of a man, a fire of a woman. But the difference, that's that's what they share in common, fire and fire. What is the difference between male and female is in a man there is a yud, and in the and in the woman, in the isha, there is a hey. Now yud and hey are two letters of God's name. Actually, the first two letters of God's name. In the man, there's the first letter, yud, and in the woman, there's the is the is the um, second letter of God's name, the hey. So uh, that means that whether a, a Jewish man or a Jewish woman, we all have an intrinsic, deep, godly spark, a piece of Hashem inside of us. The Ish and the Isha have a Yud and a He, two letters of God's name in our soul. In essence, that's your holiness. So what's the purpose of Torah, of the mitzvahs and Torah? If you have already your holiness and your godliness. Question is, like we asked earlier in the first teaching I gave today from the Tefer Shlomo, is that oil is that godly spark that's in you is that hidden 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 in the recesses of your heart and secluded and not or is it manifesting and revealed in everyday living so that's the that's our job our job is to illuminate the spark of hashem that's inside of us and bring it out from its quintessential point that it should spread and manifest so that our physical bodies and our, first of all, our entire consciousness, but even our physical hands and feet and body should become one lamp of God. That means anybody that looks at us should see pure divine light shining from each and every one of us. That already requires mitzvahs. Through Torah and mitzvahs, we take the essential yud and hay that's in our soul, in our essence, and shine it outward. And he says, where do you see that? There is a verse that we say in Halal. We said it yesterday. Um, we say, Minha Meitzar, from the constriction 
Karasi, I call Ka. I call out God's name. I call. Anani, he should answer me by Merchav in, 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 in broadness. Ka. So we say, Simply it means, I call you from my angst. I call you when I'm in trouble. I call you when I feel very constricted, when the whole world is caving in on me. And I know when you will answer me by Merchav, you will open up for me. I won't feel anymore the constriction. I will find expansion. I will find openness. But according to this Vasemis, there's a much deeper meaning here. Meitzar means when your yud and your hay, the yud that's in the man and the hay that's in the woman, is in a state of constriction. It's not shining. It's deep, deep, deep in the core of your soul. There is a potential for holiness, but that potential is not being tapped because a person's life is completely mundane. A person's life is completely divorced from their spiritual uh, um, power, from their inner capability, from their inner godly light. They're living a life very, very much just obsessed with material things, ignoring their soul. So then the nisham is in a state of meitzar, it's constricted. Merchav, he says, is to take your neshama and reveal it outward. How do you do that? Merchav, he says, is the gematria, the numeric value of Merchav is 250. Mem and is 240. Ches and is another, is, is 10. 240 and 10 is 250, which is near. That means... How do you take your soul from being a little point inside of you and for it to becoming, going out and become merchav, expand, near mitzvah, the Torah or you're doing mitzvahs, which mitzvahs, how many mitzvahs are there? 248 plus the two, the yud and the hay, which were, make the 248 into 250. So now you expand your, your, your pintala, your little point, your little essence and turn it into an entire complete um, a complete manifestation where the person's entire being is illuminated with that godly light now why is it that when the the, the yutke comes out into manifestation into revelation it comes out into a nair no nair means a light shining but where do you see the relationship of yutke to becoming a nair so he explains as follows when you take the letter Yud and you times the He, Yud and He, you want to take the Ka from a Meitzar, from a constricted state, and you want to make it into a Merchav, into a full, broad revelation. So you take the Yud and the He, you times times one to the other. So Yud is 10 and He is he is, is 5. 5 times 10 is 50. Well, that's the, the Nun from the word Ner is 50. So it's Yud times it's it's you times hey it's five it's ten times five which is fifty which is the noon. How do you get the the resh? The resh is another two hundred. Where does that come from? Well, let's go back to the yud and the hey, which is inside of us in the ishan and the isha. Well, let's open it up. So when you take the yud and you open up the yud, what's inside the letter yud? Another yud, because when you say the word yud inside it, the other letters that follow are vav and adalit. Vav and Adalit, Vav is six, and Dalit is four. You say Yud, Vav and Dalit is another, so it's another 10. So a Yud is really has another 10 inside of it. If you open up the Yud, you'll find the other 10. Hey has another Hey in it. Which letter follows in a Hey? When you spell out the word Hey, 
one of the ways of spelling it out is hey hey. So hey is really another hey. Two hey's is ten, and two yuds is twenty. Twenty times ten is two hundred. So the word ner comes from the yud and the hey engaging with each other. Times the yud times the hey, you get fifty. Times the full yud against the full hey is another is two hundred. It's two hundred and fifty. So when you're taking your spintle, your ish, we all have it, man or woman, we have it inside of us. Now it's about the expansion to turn it into a nair. When we do that, we become an illuminous being, and that's Hanukkah. When we finally overcame the Greeks, who tried to stifle our light and try to, as we spoke earlier, contaminate our oil from shining forward in this powerful light, now we have this powerful illumination. And that's the teaching from the Svasemis. Now we go on to the teachings of the great and saintly Rebbe of Ruzhin. One of the things that the Hasidic Rebbe's did is in addition to their, um, in addition, the Hasidic Rebbe's, in addition to their um, um, helping and shining and inspiring the generation, they were also busy with fixing souls from past past incarnations. Many souls would come to these great saintly people. You see, the Hasidic masters are the ones who are here to prepare the world for Mashiach. And therefore, all the souls that were already in bodies that for whatever reason couldn't complete their work or got blemished, the great Hasidic Rebbeim were involved in fixing their souls because all souls need to be fixed by the time Mashiach comes. So we see sometimes in their teachings that they they correct souls in their teachings. When they're teaching something, even though it looks like they're down, that tzaddik seems to be in the physical world talking, saying a Torah, saying a teaching, he's really intending, his head is in heaven, he's fixing some soul up there. So this is very evident in this teaching. I think I mentioned it in one of my recordings already earlier. Uh, the teaching, I, I mentioned it last time, if I, I, uh, if I mentioned it, I think, in one of the classes, I mentioned it in the name of Reboruch of Mezhubuj. But here... In the Sefer Iren Kaddushin from the Ruzhiner, it brings this teaching from the Ruzhiner. Very, very fascinating teaching. In Hanukkah, I mentioned earlier that Hanukkah is not mentioned in Scripture, but it's mentioned in Talmud. But only really in the Talmud, not so much in the Mishnah. Even though it happened in, before the times of the Mishnah, it's hardly even mentioned in the Mishnah. That's how much it's not written. It's mentioned not as a holiday in the, in the Mishnah. It's mentioned in one of the laws regarding financial matters, financial responsibility. It's mentioned in a very by-the-way way, in a very, um, what we call, um, a matter-of-fact way. It's not mentioned, what is it talking about? It's a Mishnah Mishnah and Tractate Baba Kama. And Tractate Baba Kama is talking about um, a person who has a, 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 a shopkeeper. A shopkeeper has a shop, and in his um, shop, he has a, a lamp burning, a fire burning, a lamp. Right? He's entitled to have his lamp burning in a shop. Meanwhile, outside on the market, in the street, a a um, a, a person is riding is, is is leading a camel with merchandise. Now he loaded up the camel with a super with a super with a super load. It's like uh, like sometimes you're driving on the freeway and uh, and there is a a truck in front of you that's a uh, a. Uh, 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 they can have a sign warning large over overload or a large load that's protruding from the two sides of the of the truck. Be careful. So in this case, 
Um, this guy is riding his camel or leading his camel, and he has, let's say, uh, flammable material on the camel that he's carrying, let's say carpets or different types of uh, flax or whatever it is. And being that it's protruding from the sides of the camel, as he walks, the flax goes into the shopkeeper's store and catches fire from his um, from the lamp. And before you know it, the whole town is burned down. It's burning. Now the question, who's responsible? Is it the shopkeeper who has had the lamp burning in his store? Or the, 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 the camel driver? Who, uh, who, so the Talmud, so the Mishnah says that if the candle was indoors, then it's the, then it's the camels, uh, then it's the camel driver's fault because he, he, uh, you know, uh, this guy is allowed to have a, sh- a candle burning in a shop. You should be careful not to, sh- when you're, when you're going next to people's stores to make sure that your, your, uh, your merchandise is not, is not sticking into protruding into people's stores. And, you know, and this can happen. So it's his fault and he's responsible for the, for the damages occurred from the fire. However, if the shopkeeper put his lamp outdoors and the fire got caught uh, in a place where since the people, you know that people are walking by. So why are you having your fire outdoors? And people are entitled to walk in with their animals and animals sometimes carry merchandise that are flammable. Therefore, the person, the shopkeeper is then responsible for the damages of the fire. That's what the Mishnah says. Comes Rabbi Yehuda, one of the sages in the Mishnah, and he says, oh, there's one exception. If it was the, one of the nights of Hanukkah and the shopkeeper put out his menorah, the lamp that was outside was his menorah, which he's supposed to put out to the street, and then it caught fire, shopkeeper is not responsible because you should have known it's Hanukkah and been careful. He's allowed to put his candle outside and people that are traveling on the street should be careful if they're bringing merchandise next to Hanukkah Hanukkah lamps. That's the law. Seems to be strictly financial discussion. But with the highs of the holy tzaddik, who can see much deeper, he reads the story completely different. He says, the Mishnah refers to the shopkeeper as the word, as chenvani. Chenvani, he says, comes from the word, that the word chenvani, if you rearrange the letters, you get the word Yochanan. Yochanan is a Hebrew name, a name of a person, Yochanan. So Chenveni is really talking about Yochanan. So which Yochanan are we talking about? Which Yochanan? <laughs> he says Yochanan was a high priest. And this Yochanan was a great and saintly high priest. He was such a tzaddik. He went into the Holy of Holies, Yom Kippur after Yom Kippur consecutively for 80 years. He lived a long life. He was a high priest for 80 years. People that weren't worthy would die if they went into the Holy of Holies, even if they were the high priest. If they weren't worthy, they died. He was a high priest for 80 years. He was such a tzaddik. And then it says after, the sages say, never trust in yourself. You can, never, can always, God forbid, go off the deep end. And this is what happened to Yochanan Kongadol. He slipped in the end of his life and became a a denier of the oral law. It's called the tzedukim. He joined a sect of Jews that didn't believe in the oral law, only in the biblical law. Decided to change course at the end of his life. And what he did as a result of that was they had, because they only believed in the what is written open in the Chumash without the sages' interpretations, one of the things that they changed, that they did different than we have in tradition, was when the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies, according to our tradition, he's supposed to he comes in with incense and he's supposed to light the, the katoras, the spice. 
He's supposed to walk in with one hand, he holds the shovel full of coals. The other hand, he holds a spoonful of ketores, of the spices. He walks into the Holy of Holies. He places the shovel of the, of the ketores, I'm sorry, of the coals in front of the ark between the two poles. And then he f- takes the contents of the spoon and turns it into, gets it into his hands. And from his hands, he pours it onto the coals and it starts smoking and he has to stand in the room until the smoke fills the room and then he walks out backwards. And this is the highest service that there is on Yom Kippur only once a year. One person, the Holy of Holies. This is the way you're supposed to do it. Our rabbis had a tradition that this is the way it needs to be done. The Tzedukim believed based on their literal reading of the verse that you're supposed to light the spices on fire, the Ketoris on fire in the outs in the outer chamber. And start smoking and walk in while it's smoking. So this is what the Derujanist says the Mishnah means. That if the shopkeeper, who we are now turning around the word Yochanan from shopkeeper. Sorry, Chenveni shopkeeper. And saying that the word Chenveni also means Yochanan. It's referring to Yochanan, the high priest. Who put his fire outside, which means he lit the, the Ketores, not inside the 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 holy of holies but he put it in the outer room what did that do that means yochanan is now guilty chayev can doesn't only mean this has to pay chayev means guilty he's guilty and he even though he was a meritous person all of his life he now entered into guilt sadly he was going to die in guilt he was going to die a sinner he, 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 he's even though he was such a tzaddik all of his life, he, he, he turned sour in the end of his life. And maybe he did pass away that way. And his soul was in a very dark place. Comes Rabbi Yehuda, and Rabbi Yehuda says, Bener Potter, that his soul was elevated. You know when? Yochanan Kohen Gadol is the father of Matasyo, the, her- the hero of Hanukkah. Like we say, Bimei Matasyo Ben Yochanan. So Matasyo, the Kohen Gadol, who led the revolt against was the son of Yochanan Kohen Gadol, Yochanan the high priest. And since his son became such a hero, and he fought for Jewish causes, and he, and, he, and, he, and, he, and he rededicated the temple, and he overthrew the Greeks, and he brought us the miracle of Hanukkah, and he brought so much infinite light to the world, he redeemed his father with that miracle, with that, with that mitzvah that he did. And that's the meaning, Bener Hanukkah Pater, that when Hanukkah happened through, through, um, through Yochanan, through Matasyahu's son of Yochanan, he he just now putter, he exempted his father from the dark place where his father was. He elevated his father. This was the teaching of the Holy Rujan. It's possible that, that, till, that till the time that the Rujaner said it, the soul of Yochanan Kangadl was, was suffering. And only with the teaching, I don't know this, but with the teaching of the Rujaner, that he revealed that the story of Hanukkah is good enough to redeem uh, Yochanan's Neshama. And he says, by the way, that's the reason why they instituted to put Hanukkah candles outside to fix the sin of the putting of the of the Ketoris outside. Fascinating. This is the Holy Original. We have two more teachings. We're going to do it quickly. Next one is the teaching from the Chernobyl dynasty, from the great Rebbe, the Rebbe of Urvich. He's one of the great Hasidic Rebbe's who left Ukraine in the early days of Hasidic Hasidism and made Aliyah to the land of Israel, and he was lived in Tzfat. He has a shul in Tzfat, and he made a, his famous book is the Bat Ayin, 
People celebrate him a lot. His yard site is a very big deal. Anyways, um, he has a teaching for Hanukkah as follows. Related to the Parsha of Miketz, last week's Torah portion. In the beginning of Parsha of Miketz, it says that it was in the end of two days, two years, and Pare dreamt. So we know Paro had a dream, seven cows, seven fat cows, seven meager cows, the seven meager, meager cows eat the seven fat cows. And then he has a second dream. The second dream is about uh, um, um, stalks of, of, uh, of uh, grain that come out. And they're, they're very they're very good looking, plump. And then there are other ones that come out very, very skinny and, and, and screwly, uh, very um, uh, dried out and not good looking. And then the same thing happens. The, 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 the bad looking uh, stalks of grain eat the other ones. Okay, that was Paro's dream. Yosef is called and interprets it. And we all know the rest of the story. So he asked the question, how come it says it was the end of two years? This is referring to two years after Yosef. What happened was right before that, it says Yosef asks the butler when he interprets the butler's dream, please remember me, mention me in front of Paro. When you're going to be restored to your post, tell Pharaoh that there is a unjust, a, a slave who has been accused unjustly, ask Paro to take me out of, you know, to, to get me out of here. And it says that Yosef was punished because he put his trust in, in, in mankind, not in God. And therefore, he had to wait another two years until his salvation. In other words, had Yosef not asked him that he should redeem him, then maybe he would have done it on his own. As soon as he went out, he would have told Pharaoh, hey, there's a kid there that's just a, a young lad. That's amazing. But because Yosef asked, which he wasn't supposed to, put your trust in God, he had to wait another two years till he languished. Sadly, he languished. He didn't languish because he was a tzaddik and he didn't languish, but he had to endure another two years of prison. That's what it says. But it was after that, Uparo Cholem and Paro dreamt. But he asked the question, why does it say Uparo Cholem and Paro dreamt? Why doesn't it say Vayachalom Paro and Paro had a dream? Like when it describes Yosef's dreams in the week earlier in Patras Vayetra, it says that Vayachalom Yosef, Yosef had a dream. And he related it to his brothers. How come it says it was the end of two years? And Paro was dreaming. Okay, two years. And now Paro has a dream. So he explains. Very beautiful. He says that um, Yom, the name, the word Yom, which means a day. Day means also light. Because by day you have light. In other words, the contrast of Yom to Laila. Yom means day, day and Laila means night. So in other words of translating that, Yom is is Or, is light, and Laila is Choshech, is darkness. But he says um, the idea that Yom is light what means illumination. What type of illumination? There's two types of illumination. There is physical illumination and spiritual illumination. What does that mean? The, the physical uh, illumination means success in the physical realm. Spiritual illumination means success in the spiritual realm. In both realms, the physical and the spiritual, one needs to trust in God that God will help. Him. That means in life, we realize that we really can't do anything on our own. Everything is with divine assistance. And that's why we pray all the time. We're constantly thinking and praying. The more we can 
get ourselves into that state of recognizing that we're in the hands of God all the time and that we need Hashem's assistance constantly, the more blessed our life is. And we have to realize that we need God's assistance, not, of course, in the material, because we can't create anything. If we, even if we have a good job or if we're financially, you know, have a good business, we know that the real blessing is coming from Hashem. It's not coming from anything we do. We're only creating a little a camouflage. We're creating a little a hiding, hiding setting for God to hide his miraculous blessing. Everything is a miracle and everything is coming to God. Every cent we earn. But we have to realize it's not only physical. In the spiritual as well. Even though God over here expects us to put in hard work, but our work will only bear fruit if we have God's assistance. So if you want to pray, you want to pray, before you pray, pray that God should assist you in your prayer. And before you do a mitzvah, pray that God should assist you in your mitzvah. And before you study Torah, offer a prayer and say, God, please help me be successful in my Torah. And most important is, even more than the prayer, is to trust. God loves when we trust in Him. When we constantly trust that He will assist us. Both in the material things and spiritual. So he says yom, which means illumination. The word yom has a vav inside of it. Yud vav mem. The vav inside the word yom means that we realize that our light needs the vav. Vav is a flow, a thread of divine assistance. And so we recognize that everything that has to be divine input. Where there is divine input, then it's yom, yom, two days. The two days are divine input in our physical illumination, physical successes, when when it's bright, when it's good for us physically, but it's recognizing Hashem's involvement and recognizing Hashem's involvement also in all spiritual attainments and trusting in Him. So when a person trusts in God, that Hashem will assist him, then he has, then God fills that space, then God comes down and sends his blessing because God is looking for your trust. When you're trusting, then you have divine assistance. And then you have the word yom is spelled with a vav because Hashem's input is there. If a person both in their physical needs and in their spiritual needs thinks they can do it alone, or thinks that they have the means and connections, worldly connections. You know, I'm connected to this guy and I have good contacts and therefore I'm going to be successful in my next business venture or whatever it is. Or I have such, I can trust that I have enough um, moral and ethical, you know, strength inside of me to, to, to beat my Yetzirah and do what's right. I can do it on my own. Don't need God's assistance. Then we're, then, then, then God forsakes the person, God forbid. And then we don't have the vav. And then it remains yam without a vav. So since Yosef had a blemish in his trust in God, because he turned to this his connections that he felt he had. So therefore the verse says, as we said earlier, God, his, his, God forsook, stepped out of his days, and there was no vav there, and that's the meaning of Ahimi Kates. It was at the end, Shinasayim, which means two yamim. And the word yamim is spelled yud mem, yud mem, which means yom, yom, without a vav. Vacant days without the vav, without the divine presence. But how long did Yosef deserve that punishment? God forbid. Of Hashem being absent 
because he because he asked for uh, human help, he only deserved it for a period of two years. The moment that punishment was, the moment that um, what's it called again? Uh, the moment that that um, um, time was was um, completed, and the sentence kind of was completed, then um, he was good again. The moment that that time was completed, uh, um, um, Yosef was was good again. He had uh, he didn't have any more, you know, there was no problem. And his salvation was able to come. So that's the meaning of as soon as the two years were over. Um, where he was lacking the vav. Now the salvation came. Paro has a dream. That's why it says because it's continuing to be four. Now the reason why Paro didn't dream earlier was because there was this problem. So Vahimikates, as soon as the two yamim, as soon as your godless time ended, Yosef's godless time ended, his day, each day translated into a year. As soon as that godless time ended, because of his own in lack of trust, instantly his, his, his salvation came. Paro had a dream. And what was Paro's two dreams? One was representing the, the, the spiritual, and one was representing the physical. The spiritual was represented by the cows, the dreams with the cows, and the physical was represented by the ears of grain. Because animal is more spiritual, because it has it's an animal, it has already a soul, and the ears of grain, showing that we need the divine assistance both in our spiritual endeavors and in our physical endeavors. And he says these two illuminations, these two yoms, these two lights, which which come to us with God illuminating in our life is the two mitzvahs that we have with light, with lamps. And one of them is the light of Shabbos, and the other one is the light of Hanukkah. Shabbos light and Hanukkah. He doesn't say which one is Shabbos and which one. One represents divine assistance and divine illumination. The, the day, the vav of Hashem's name in our in our spiritual world, in our physical world. And if I remember correctly, let me see. It doesn't mention. Oh, no, no, no. It does. Shabbos is, is, is divine assistance in spiritual matters. That's why we light the Shabbos lamps indoors. Inside represents the spiritual matters. Hanukkah is lit outdoors on the street, representing the more external element of our life, which is physical things. And over there, too, we need divine assistance. So this is the teaching of the great um, Rebbe, the Bas Ayan. And now we're on for our final teaching, which we're going to do one, two, three. And this is... The last thought that I had over here to share, and this is the thought of the Rebbe, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, regarding Hanukkah, and where the Rebbe explains in his last talk that he gave on Hanukkah, Moshiach means anointment. Moshiach is anointed of oil. The whole miracle of Hanukkah happened through the oil. Where does the oil come from? Who is the high priest? That this is the high priest really is referring to Mashiach. Mashiach the main name for Mashiach, the Messiah, is that he is anointed. He's anointed with this holy oil. It's referring to the oils of the essence of the Torah. Because the Torah has many layers. Torah is compared sometimes to water, Torah is sometimes compared to bread, Torah is compared to wine, and Torah is compared to oil. The bread and the water of Torah is the exoteric part of the Torah, the, the law of the Torah. 
And the wine and the oil of Torah are the secrets of the Torah. The wine is a lower level secret and the oil is the higher level secret, just like wine and oil. Wine is hidden in the grape, but it's easier to get the wine out of the grape. It needs a, a little press, but oil is, it needs already a major crushing. It's hard to get oil out of it because the oil is considered, is hidden more than the wine. And it's referring to the secrets of the secrets, primarily the secrets that are going to be revealed when Mashiach comes. So really the entire Hanukkah miracle was a messianic miracle. It just came 2,000 years earlier before the coming of Mashiach, two and a, two and a half thousand years. Why? Because the world got so dark and without messianic light, we would never have been able to continue our journey. So Mashiach, it's amazing, Mashiach from the end of time, from the end of history, stuck his hand out through history and gave to the Jewish people 2,000 years earlier the, the jug of oil, the jar of oil. He puts he puts it there. Hanukkah is coming from Mashiach. It's at that time, what does it mean? There was a revelation of the teachings of Mashiach, which means the inner light of Torah, which the Greeks can't contaminate it. Just like we spoke earlier that there's a portion in, in the soul that can't be contaminated. There's a certain part of the Torah that you can't contaminate. The Greeks studied Torah. They liked the Torah, but they felt that we should, they, they wanted to insert their human, human dense human thinking into the Torah. Take the Torah away from its divine origins. To see the Torah just as a, as a, as a, as a science, as a, as a, as a wisdom, but not to take the godliness out of it. Now you can do that with God forbid, with Talmud and so on and so forth, because you don't sense so much the divinity of it. But when it comes to the deepest secrets of the Torah over here, the divine element is so overpowering you can't deny it. And that is the oil of Torah, and that's the teachings Mashiach is going to teach. Its first revelation was in the time of Hanukkah. It revealed itself a little bit. Its next powerful revelation was in another holiday that happened 2,000 years later, also in the month of Kislev, which is the, the 19th of Kislev, where Hasidus, Hasidus and the Balshemtov and then the Alter Rebbe, where the teachings of Hasidus, that's that very same oil. But that oil is coming out stronger and stronger and stronger. But its ultimate revelation is going to be when Mashiach is here, um, that's when we're really going to reach the full depth of Hanukkah, which is the revelation of that oil. With this, we conclude the eight teachings from the eight branches of the Hasidic menorah. May Hashem help that this menorah light should shine in us and through us the entire year. We should all be lamps. We should all shine with this incredible, godly, infinite light from now and forever.